Hey, Deviants, welcome back to your favorite podcast ever and another episode of Dark and Devious. Welcome back to this week's episode of Dark and Devious. Um, Patrick here, and I would like to thank you for returning once again. And if you are new, welcome. Yes, thank you for tuning in. We've got lots of of new places to welcome into our horde of deviants. <laughs> I like the the term of horde. Yeah. Of deviants. <laughs> Um, makes me think that you're all just a bunch of zombies coming at us. <laughs> uh, but yeah, welcome, uh, Ecuador. Yeah, that was a very cool new surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, welcome to Spain. I looked at that and it said that our listener there was from the Madrid area. Mm-hmm. So, hola. And we have the Dominica Republic. Um, that was super cool. And Puerto Rico. Oh yeah, that one is like the newest one. Like that just happened today. today yeah, I just think. today. We someone from Puerto yes. Rico popped up. Yeah, so thank you for listening there. And then there is our I guess our honorable mention that we aren't sure that we mentioned that before. Uh, but Indonesia. We had gotten a listener in Indonesia. So if we did not previously mention it, we have at least now for sure covered it we will remember this conversation in theory in theory <laughs> uh yeah if someone out there wants to keep track of who all we're <laughs> shouting out to because yes, I every love... week it's an it's the same conversation we're like did we mention this country i don't know let's maybe cover our bases yeah. and do it again i know it never hurts to mention a place twice it's fine um so anything new in your neck of the woods? Well, I was going to mention, uh, because of last week's episode, talking about Candyman, I had to revisit the movie. I was really lucky that we had it on DVD at work, and so now I have like my <laughs> yes, own copy. Yes, I, I love that. <laughs> the same week that we talked about the inspiration, you just happened to find it at work. Yes, so I'm very, very happy that I now have that in my collection because it is honestly such a well-done film and I'm glad to have it forever and always. Uh-huh. Um, um, so not, no spoilers at all in this if someone hasn't seen this, <laughs> but uh, there is a scene in the movie with bees Oh yes. and Tony Todd, the man who plays uh, Candyman's Mouth. Um, fun fact, those were real-life bees that he had inside his mouth. But it was like a stunt person? No, no. no. And he got paid $1,000 for every bee sting that was received. Oh my gosh. And I can't remember the exact number. I'll look it up. Um, You know, in the little break, and I'll throw it in there when we come back. Uh, but I'll tell you just how much money he made from the bee stings alone. Oh my gosh. That's like, it's like, oh man, I'm kind of hoping not to get stung because it's painful. 
but the more stings I get, the more I can cash in. Like, I can get over a bee sting. It'll still suck, though. Oh, funny. Gosh. Uh, also, in connection to uh, Candyman, I, I have to mention Ty once again. I was talking to him about uh, Cabrini Green, and uh, he used to live in Chicago. And uh, I guess he had worked at a furniture place uh, that was in that area. And so um, he was saying how, like, you basically you would cross the street, and it was this really nice high-end neighborhood. And then you cross to the other side of the street, and you're in Cabrini Green, and it's like you do not walk there after dark. Um, but he was saying how... Like, every time he was walking through that part, he always thought, like, oh, it's, it's Candyman territory. Yeah, it is astounding that um, it, I mean, even, like, today it's been gentrified, right? Yeah, so, like, all, I think all of those original buildings have been demolished. They're either demolished or they were repurposed. Okay, oh! Um, so. Not as apartments, so, like, the really big buildings are gone. Yeah. But, like, the the row houses uh-huh. uh, that they've been like redone so interesting and you know i've walked through that area as recently as like five years ago and uh-huh. you never would have known that like 30 years ago it was such a dangerous place wow and it was such a dangerous place just six blocks from the gold coast oh yeah it's so crazy how and the gold coast is a very wealthy well-to-do neighborhood yeah and in the 80s it it was well to do then yeah but just stayed nice just a 20 minute walk away or a five minute car ride Uh was like the worst situation to live in i mean chicago land if not the whole country i mean it was terrible place to live that is really interesting and and they even they talk about the in candy man they talk about how the that neighborhood is kind of isolated by certain barriers and that kind of keeps everything contained Mm -hmm. yeah city planning can be used for good and it can be used for bad oh yes uh that's definitely very true to wrap up our little candy man discussion (laughs) from last week um i found this quote from tony todd saying, I negotiated a bonus of $1,000 for every sting during the B scene. I got stung 23 times. Whoa. Everything that's worth making has to involve some sort of pain. Once I realized it was an important part of who Can-Man was, I embraced it. It was like putting on a beautiful coat. Dang, so he got $23,000 from getting stung by bees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, uh, I mean... I mean, I don't blame him. If yeah. they're going to say, hey, we're going to put bees in your mouth, I'm going to say, one, those I need to be like, de-stingerized de- bees. Uh, right? And I'm like, is that even possible? Like, um, <laughs> are these trained bees? Right. Or you're going to like, make it worth it. Yeah. Right? I would hope he would already know whether he was allergic to bees or not before, because <laughs> that would be a terrible way to find out. I mean, allergic or not, his mouth yeah. probably is ballooned. You got Ugh. 23 bee stings in your mouth? Yeah. I would be like, are you sure there's not 30? <laughs> 35 maybe in there? Uh-huh. <laughs> it feels like 35. But anyway, um, I'm trying to think if we have, what else we said we were going to cover. Um... 
only thing I've had, so last week I shared that, like, I was just, like, socially exhausted. Yes. I, Do you feel recovered? I am recovered. Um, last week I hated every single person in the world. <laughs> this week I've done nothing aside from meeting with you. All right. And, like, going grocery shopping. That's fine because I don't have to talk to anybody. Nice. Okay. Um, and I'm, I am better. I am, I am recovered. You're socially recovered. That's good to hear. I'm not ready, <laughs> but I am healed. <laughs> um, but no, so I've like spent a lot of alone time this week, and during that time I discovered a new podcast. It's called National Park After Dark. Ooh, okay. And the title alone intrigues me. Mm-hmm. It's these two gals, and uh, they talk about things in national parks that are like suspicious Ooh, and i like that they talk about it's worldwide too so it's like okay. national parks all over the world and they cover you know not only like true crime or like murdered or missing people they also talk about supernatural things such as like hauntings cool. aliens i was uh, gonna say there's a lot of um what is it there's like a a lot of conspiracy theories about like people going missing near national parks where it's like, honestly, if you're going to like stumble down into a, a ditch and like hit your head and die, like that's a great place to do that. I feel like, um, but it is certainly interesting to think that there might be something more sinister mm-hmm. or, or supernatural behind the, the disappearances of so many people. Yeah. Um, which, um, leads me to also, I discover this because there's, I don't have TikTok. Um, I'm sorry. I'm going to hate on our, <laughs> our listeners that do because <laughs> I do not like TikTok. I think it's, <laughs> I don't know. I just think there's way too much social media in our lives. That's very true. But I will watch some of them sometimes yeah. if there I are, see and it. There are some good me. ones. And the one that I watched, uh, was focusing on the rumor that there is a, Family of Cannibals in the Smoky Mountain uh, National Park, Ooh, which okay. is very like Hills Have Eyes-ish. All right. Um, which led me to this podcast because they cover a missing person that some people claim was taken by this family of cannibals. Um, it's just... It's, it sounds like it's a compelling story. It is. They, they must have some something to back it up. They um, do. Um, however, if you listen to the podcast, like there's, this person was never found, and okay. there's a much more believable theory than that the government knows about a family of cannibals. Right? Like, yeah, I feel like that would not be good for tourism, <laughs> or the best. I mean, depending what you're into. Right. I mean, you never know. I'm not gonna judge, but I will. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's. That's all I have. It's been a quiet week and a very, like, interesting week in terms of what I've been consuming. Yeah, all right. Wow. I just, I realize now that after we've been talking about, like, what's going on, I have a bunch of friends that are all kind of scattering to the winds. So I've had a lot of goodbye parties this this last week. So, but what's great is that now I've got friends who are moving to these big cities across the country and that means that I really want to go visit them. So it'll be very good to have connections. I've got, I had a friend who earlier this summer moved to New York and 
And I've got someone moving to Chicago and Dallas. So I... And as mentioned on previous episodes, I might as well just come out and say it. Um, because as mentioned, like, I wasn't working anymore. Oh, and yeah. And that's because... It's not just because you wanted to be a housewife? I mean, I mean give me a... <laughs> apron and some heels i am like (laughs) i am living that life just tell my give my husband the permission to do it because he says i can't (laughs) um i don't know why i guess like income's a thing but uh you will soon have another friend in another city and i'm not going to reveal it where yet but we are moving that's right but don't worry listeners our podcast will continue absolutely i'll let you know when we move when it's happening yes we know the city (laughs) we have the house it's just a matter of a waiting game yes so we will enjoy our in-person sessions as as long as we are able to and then we'll we'll just have to record remotely for a while indefinite (laughs) until our live shows start up yeah right Although I would gladly come and visit you and record in person. That would be very fun. And vice versa. Yes. I am just itching to get on the road again. Because I still still have not taken an airplane since like late 2019. Okay. So it's, it's time for an airplane trip again. Well, I think we hit all of our bullet points that we wanted to talk about yes um and as you mentioned we're going to enjoy our in-person recordings while we have them and i can't wait to get into whatever you're serving us today yes all right so last week we talked about the real life story that helped give the horror film Candyman a root in reality and i think you'll be pleased to hear that this week's case also has a movie connection Although this time it's a link to a dark comedy. We're talking about I, Tanya. Oh. Which, so oh, okay. T- today we're going to look at legendary figure skater Tanya Harding and the conspiracy that led to the attack on rival skater Nancy Kerrigan. Okay, I'm here for this. One, I don't like the fact that they decided to make... A movie about Tanya Harding rather than Nancy Kerrigan. Oh, okay. Because, like, Nancy Kerrigan was the victim. Like, I don't... <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't care about have you Tanya seen, Harding. Have you seen it yet? No. Okay. It's Because I was very against it. <laughs> I, was, I understand the concept. Like, yes. I get that. But I was like, mm, I'd rather hear about Nancy Kerrigan's life <laughs> than Tanya Harding. Uh, but I do know that it was very well received. Yeah. And it... I mean, I remember this event i remember the infamous footage of nancy on the ground screaming why yeah um and yeah i'm i'm here for this yeah it's a really like a really kind of entertaining interesting case uh and like just a really great pop culture moment so in fact one of the reasons why i decided to do this one this week so i i kind of have to give my coworker kai a Shout out because um, she and I were talking in the break room. Oh, is this, this Kai? Yes, oh. the Kai that we saw perform. Yeah. Hi, Kai. Yeah, I'm, she has to listen to at least this episode. I saw you from a distance the other day. 
<laughs> I was going to come say hi, but you were busy. Um, so she mentioned to me in the break room that one of my coworkers, who was not that much younger than me, had no idea who Tanya Harding was. <sighs> so, or like, or why she's infamous. Like, so I thought this was the perfect opportunity to educate my friends and people everywhere who might not remember the case or maybe don't remember all the details of the case or were maybe too young to know that this ever happened. So um, I, I also think, especially because the memes that have been popping up lately where everywhere it's, you know, it's always like the, my fall plans and then the Delta variant, like the whole, like they, there've been like, a million of those memes but a lot of people have been posting the one where like they call nancy kerrigan like my fall plans and then they they put the, uh tanya. The Del- tanya as the delta variant like, it's very true <laughs> nancy had and, much bigger plans for that year. oh my gosh so i think it's really uh i, I think it's really perfect to be telling this story right now side note before we get into this mm-hmm. i just want to say that when you said that like oh, this is another um, movie movie that was inspired by true events or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think it's funny how, like, my mind immediately was going to, like, the Scream-inspired murders and the, (laughs) like, movies that were inspired by, like, John JonBenet Ramsey or, like, these really, like, dark places, which this is dark. Yeah. But it just shows a difference between you and me because I'm like, <laughs> let's talk about murder and horrible things that like plague our society. And yours is awful, but a much lighter version of awful. Right. This is more, I feel like this is more the devious end of like dark and devious. Right? I, yeah. I think I definitely kind of represent more of the dark side <laughs> of our podcast when you think about all of our cases. And I, I feel like I really like the plotting and the, like, the the more, like, the sinister, like, sinister plotting, I think, is more what I, I like the most. So that's why we're, we're like peanut butter and jelly with this. Like, we, like, go together perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, totally fits dark and devious to a T. So let's start at the very beginning. Tanya Maxine Harding was born November 12th, 1970 in Portland, Oregon. So I have to say that she's got some big Scorpio energy because she's super determined. She's really ambitious. She's very jealous. So she kind of just fits like all of those kind of like things that are normally assigned to that sign to a T. It's funny, I am also a Scorpio, so I'm not hating on Scorpios because I am one too. (laughs) But I think that it's really funny how she really fits those... The astrological characteristics. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, Her parents were Albert Harding and Lavana Golden Harding. Uh, Their union was the first for Tanya's father, but a surprising fifth for her mother. See, folks, it's never too late to find love, sometimes fifth time's a charm. So Tanya was the pair's only child and she enjoyed a warm relationship with her father. He was an unskilled laborer and worked various low paying jobs to try and support the family. 
Tanya and her father, despite their limited means, bonded over hunting, shooting, and playing pool. He even taught her all about fixing cars. Unfortunately, though, poor health often sidelined Albert from work, further straining the family's financial situation. Tanya's mother had quite the opposite sensibilities when it came to her daughter. Described as cold and lacking in maternal instincts, Lavana was not exactly one to spare the rod. According to one of Tanya's childhood friends, she would discipline Tanya by spanking her with a hairbrush. So I assume it's like one of those like broad handled ones. Oh yeah, like, like, like the big heavy duty brushes. Yeah, like it would basically like work like a paddle. That sounds awful. Mm-hmm. So she uh, worked off and on as a waitress to help keep the family afloat and even occasionally walked the, uh, the sides of the road with Tanya to collect bottles that could be turned in for cash deposits. So this was state of Oregon. Oregon has cash deposits for bottles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hey, you know, making the world a little better place, saving us Making from... a cleaner place while helping yourself as well. Exactly. And I, I wish every state did that. I think we'd have I a know. lot less trash. Um, so needless to say, it was a tough working class life for Tanya and her family. But Tanya found her talent and love for skating very early in life. At the age of three, little Tanya skated out on the ice for the first time at the Ice Chalet Skating Rink in Portland, Oregon. How old? At the age of three. Mm, wow, that's cool. I was def- I was still mastering the like forward momentum. I, think, I was still like learning how to walk because <laughs> like, as I told you earlier, like I fall down all the time. Um, so funny story when I when I was a toddler I uh, like I just ran I went like right to running everywhere and so not having the fine motor skills that is required for successful running I fell down a lot and actually there um, so I had I oftentimes would have like a black eye and there was one time my dad took me to the hardware store because he was watching me and my dad's uh general contractor and so he went to the hardware store and he was watching me so he had to take me with him and he wrote a check so the cashier saw me and the address on the check and called the police and so here the police show up at our door my dad's trying to explain what is actually going on and here I am right on cue I run to the front door and fall flat on my face in front of the police officer. So <laughs> I mean, at least you gave him a good cover. Yeah. Like. <laughs> so, uh, I yeah, uh, kudos to you, Tanya, for being able to skate on ice at the age of. There's three. a lot of adults that can't skate. Yeah. So I can go forward. I can. I can't go backward. Or I can go backwards very slowly. Oh, okay. I have to do the thing where it's like you move your feet. Oh, like, and like the half moon. Yeah. I remember they tried to teach us that on like roller skates in high school. I, I could not do it. I just did not. I. I. It. I couldn't get the concept. Anyway, uh, in an interview, she said that she had, had seen the people skating, and begged her parents that she uh, so that she could skate too. Her parents, of course, were resistant at first. I mean, after all, skating is not, is not an inexpensive hobby. Right, and it doesn't sound like they had a lot of money. Yeah. 
but she cried. She cried so much and made such a big deal out of it that they finally relented. And it's a, it's lucky for her that they did. Uh, so she took to the rink like a duck to water and seemed to have no trouble keeping balance or traversing the ice. Her mother took note of Tanya's natural talent for skating and decided to nurture this interest. She brought her to Diane Rawlinson, a 40-year veteran competitive skating coach. By all means, the very best coach available to the Hardings in the area. Tanya's family could not afford such an expensive coach, but Rawlinson saw the incredible raw talent before her and took her on anyway. I thought it was really funny that even Rawlinson would seem to be resistant to take on a new skater, especially so young that she kind of like she was used to coaching kind of more uh, established skaters, right? And and here she she's like, oh no, I like I'd like to help you, but I can't. And then little baby Tanya like just started skating circles around her and was just like so impressive that she was like okay, I see some potential here. Like, let's do it. I, th I mean, it's probably because this this coach that was used to working with, like, such highly trained and skilled adults mm -hmm. saw and... that this very young child was already mastering things that, as we mentioned, a lot of adults can't <laughs> yeah. do. So she probably so... was like, who is this prodigy? Yeah, it, was, it must have been pretty impressive. Um... I mean, especially for how much effort Rawlinson put into coaching her. So the coach said that she worked full time for seven years to pay for Tanya's skating. So wow. that was the equivalent of 23 other skaters to keep her in lessons and eventually going on to national and international competitions. So this was not a cheap undertaking at all. Rawlinson's coaching and Tanya's hard work paid off, though, and throughout the 80s, uh, Tanya climbed the ladder in the figure skating world. At the 1986 U.S. Figure Skating Championships, she placed sixth. So let's see, that would have been, she would have been, so she was only about like 16, 15, 16, depending on what month it was. The following two years, she placed fifth, so here she is inching her way up and then she rose to third place in 1989 so here she is she's getting a little bit better every single year and placing in the very top tier of the competitions after that third place finish she began training with a new coach Dodie Teachman in October of that year, Tanya Harding finally got a taste of the success that she had been building to and won first place at the Skate America competition. How old would that make her when she won that? Um, so that would have been, she would have been 20. Okay. So she's hitting her prime here. Yeah, like, I'd say like early 20s is like when you usually see skaters like really making a name for themselves. Oh, yeah. I feel like because it's so demanding, again, with like gymnasts too, you see a lot of, of that, of, People who are elite in the field retire by like their 30s. Right. Just because it's like it's you you put your body through so much. 
Um, so uh, she was also expected to do well at the 1990 U.S. Figure Skating Championships, um, but the combination of the flu and her asthma, which is plagued, which plagued her throughout her career, and is also very like prominently featured in the film *I Tanya*. There's so many times where you see her and she's like puffing on her inhaler. Sure. Um, so it, it hindered her performance. And she ended up finishing seventh overall. And in this competition, Nancy Kerrigan, it should be noted, finished fourth. So Nancy's also on a similar track. Uh, and in this, this uh, competition, she did uh, a lot better. But then the following year, Tanya came back strong. The 1991 U.S. Championships, which were actually held right here in Minneapolis Ooh. at the Target Center. Ooh. So it's still around. So it's really cool that there's like a little bit of skating history made here in Minnesota. <laughs> I mean, it is the land of snow and ice for right. five months of the year. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see if that hap- if that continues to happen. Um, this is where she made history and became the first American woman to com- complete the triple axel in competition. And when you see the footage of this performance, you can read the joy on her face immediately. She's so overjoyed that she pra- she has to practically like fight the urge to outright celebrate her incredible execution of such a difficult jump like in the moment. She just like yeah like it's it's such a great moment so I highly recommend doing a YouTube search of that. Uh, with that incredible landmark performance, Tanya won the competition and was in good company on the podium. Christy Yamaguchi came in a close second, and Nancy Kerrigan was in third. I love Christy Yamaguchi. Oh, she is phenomenal. It's really kind of cool to see that. Uh, at this period, this kind of juncture of figure skating, you see some really great recognizable uh, figures emerge. So in addition to Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, we see Christy Yamaguchi frequently finishing in the top several positions. Um, And a little bit later on, we see Michelle Kwan is starting to kind of like rise up the ranks where like she goes from like kind of fifth place and then like and then we see her become an olympic champion too mm-hmm. so it's just really this is a was a really great period for incredible it was female i skaters. remember like 80s and 90s like yeah it was, it was big figure skating was like the thing uh-huh it was like i'd say like today's equivalent of like probably like soccer Oh, yeah, because soccer's really taking off now. It is. In the Americas, anyways. Mm. Or North Americas, I should say. We're we're late to the party. We're very late because we also call it something very different. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, but wait, football? You don't kick the ball in football? Except for a few times. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Anyways, we digress. We digress. Uh, So, yeah, she was in very good company on on that podium and... And yeah, made history, figure skating history there. Um, the order would be switched at the 1991 World Championships, where Tanya once again completed a triple axel. Uh, this time it was uh, Christy Yamaguchi came in first, then Tanya Harding, then Nancy Kerrigan. 
So this was the first time a single country swept the ladies medal podium at the world championship. So that's awesome. All three representing the United States. That must've just been absolutely thrilling. Um, again, this is like prime time for American skaters. So, uh, also I thought I would do a little side note here for those who don't know what an axle jump is. Uh, it is actually, uh, figure skating's oldest and most difficult jump. So it's named after a Norwegian figure skater named Axel Paulson, which I always thought like, oh, you spin like an axle. Like that's why they call it an axle, right? <laughs> but no, it's actually named after a guy named Axel. I mean, I didn't know either. I didn't know that. But I, <laughs> so there we go. I the like, more you know. I like your um, original theory. <laughs> um, so either a, a double or a triple axle ha- is required in all short programs and free skate programs in all international skating union competitions. So it's something that's that has to happen at some point, always. Um, so the jump starts with a series of backwards crossovers. So it's like when they do the, that cool, like, crisscross with their skates. So usually they're, like, picking up speed and they go, like, and they're, they're crossing their legs back and forth. And then the skater jumps into the air. And while in the air, they have to make a full rotation for a single axle. So to, so to jump high enough and long enough, in order to rotate three times in the air, it takes a lot of strength because you're basically going from a standing position and have to like rotate, have to have enough momentum to rotate at least twice. Like, well, you have to have enough momentum to jump high enough mm-hmm. to have enough time before you come back down to spend two or three times. And then you have to stick the landing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's the other part that you have to land on a tiny blade of metal, which is nothing short of amazing. Uh, and then you also have to continue skating out and like avoid being dizzy from spinning in the air. And what's also very, I just want to add to this, a lot of times when they come down from these axle spins, they, they're landing and staying on one foot. Oh, yeah. Like, they don't, like, it's not like a solid plant mm-hmm. with two stable blades. It's like one blade on the ground, and then they just kind of, like, soar on that one blade for a while while they, like, rebalance themselves. Yeah, I, I, it takes incredible control. And I, I wrote here, it really is gymnastics on ice. And I feel like they are not, gymnast and professional ice skaters or amateur ice skaters mm-hmm. I feel like they don't get enough credit. People think it's like like a wimpy sport. Oh you know? my gosh. Like, yeah. I'm like, we're, we're like, oh, it doesn't take like raw physical power. Like, like it takes a lot of yeah. strength. Yeah. Mental and physical energy. Uh-huh. And like, I want to see some of these, you know, quote unquote, big, tough men <laughs> do the things that these like four foot eight, a hundred pound <laughs> women and men are doing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It takes incredible talent and strength to do this. And it is a very athletic sport. Harding star continued to burn brightly in the 1991 season. She continued making firsts in the skate America competition that year, uh, becoming the first woman to complete a triple axel in the short program 
the first woman to complete two triple axles in a single competition and the first ever to complete a triple axle in combination with a double toe loop. She won first place, but sadly this would mark the end of her upswing in her career. After the Skate America competition in 1991, she would never again successfully complete a triple axle in competition. Which is really sad to be like, you're on this high, like you've won like two of the biggest competitions in your field. You're on top of the world, but it's like, it doesn't get better from here. It's like she, she reached her peak. Yeah. And granted, she goes on and does a lot of other great performances, but it's just, you'll just never seems to match that same, um, that same level of achievement. Yep. So her next few appearances in top, top competitions saw her slip from her top spot. In 1992, at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, she slipped to third behind Yamaguchi and Kerrigan in first and second place, respectively. At the 1992 Winter Olympics in Albertville, France, she placed a heartbreakingly fourth place, just outside of medal territory. So in March of that year, Harding switched coaches going back to Rawlinson, but still managed to fall short of the podium territory she so desperately desired. That's what brings us to what they refer to, especially in the movie, as the incident. I'm sorry. Like, I I don't like it when people say, like, when... Like, they give a very generic word (laughs) to an event, like, the incident occurred. (laughs) Or, like, when people say, have a doctor's appointment, they're like, like, I have a meeting, or, you know, like... Or I have an appointment. Yes. I'm like, "Mm, just say what it is. (laughs) Call this incident, call it an attack, because that's what it was. (laughs) Like... And the, uh, well, maybe if I can convince you to see this movie, uh, there is a very kind of humorous sequence where everyone, where they're basically approaching the subject of the attack on Nancy Kerrigan and everyone calls it the incident. Because it's kind of set up almost like uh, a little bit like documentary style. Like there are, are, are parts where like they're interviewing Tanya Harding and her ex-husband and they're kind of like they have like these kind of talking head moments where they're just like kind of sitting there and they're kind of intersplicing their commentary into of of the story that's being told sure and it's funny because it just kind of goes through be like everybody calls it the incident (laughs) Uh, so you'll have to you'll I'm, you might I enjoy will watch it. You might it. enjoy it. I'll do it. Enjoy that. Okay. For the podcast, I must. <laughs> so while Tanya was a teenager, scrapping her way up to the top, and I, I mean that because she is uh, like literally taking scraps. Uh, her mom is making her costumes because she cannot afford to buy costumes. Um, and she is also clawing her way through the competition. 
Shortly after Tanya's parents divorced when she was 16, she found herself romantically linked with Galuli in 1988 and then married him in 1990. The marriage was a rocky one, which is well illustrated in the film I, Tanya. Uh, there are lots and lots of fight scenes with the, between the two of them, and uh, they really hit hard the, uh, the rockiness of their relationship. Um, and on top of that, like she's also coming off of a kind of traumatic home life. So not only did she have this kind of cold relationship with her mother who just really wanted her to do her best, but like wasn't really forthcoming with the whole, you know, love part. Um, she also had an abusive relationship with her stepbrother. And, um, who she called the police on him and uh, like pressed charges against him for assaulting her. And uh, interestingly enough, he died mysteriously a few years later after that charge in an auto accident that was a hit and run. Hmm. Did, so, did they ever catch who hit him? Apparently not. So another weird kind of connection. Well, a after after we discuss the yes. incident, <laughs> yes. uh, don't cross our Tanya Harding. <laughs> well, might understand why that's suspicious. Yes, yes. So uh, their their marriage was very rocky, and Harding frequently claimed uh, physical abuse from her husband, and even filed restraining orders against him. Uh, he definitely deserved a restraining order for that awful '90s mustache alone, in my opinion. Uh, and if you, I'm, I'm sure when we make a social media post, there will be a, like there's, there'll be a comparative mustache post because there are a lot of bad 90s mustaches involved with this case. But as tumultuous relationships often go, the pair would split up and reunite in a vicious cycle until they finally divorced in 1993. But they did remain in contact after that and continued to see each other off and on for at least another year. This is where their relationship leads to Tanya's downfall. 1994 was another Winter Olympics year, this time in Lillehammer, Norway. And Harding, Galuli, and his friends knew that an Olympic skating champion could make more than a million dollars in appearance fees and endorsement deals. Harding and her ex-husband both grew up poor, so of course this was an incredible lure for all those involved, especially the hangers-on like Galuli and his friends, one of whom, named Sean Eckhart, another man with a terrible mustache, served as Harding's bodyguard. Harding was still a top-tier skater, but competition from Nancy Kerrigan who had also been neck and neck with her in competition, posed a potential barrier to that fortune. That's when Galuli hatched a plan. Two days after Christmas of 1993, Galuli put together a plan. He offered $6,500 to three hitmen, Derek Smith, Shane Stant, and Sean Eckhart. That's... Is that 6300 each or as a sum? Because that's not a lot of money. Right. Uh, I think it was 6500 each. Okay. I want to say. 
They discussed several ways to take Kerrigan out of the competition. It first started with the idea of some psychological warfare. Eckhart first suggested that they send death threats to Nancy Kerrigan to intimidate her and throw her off her game. But soon the plan escalated to something more sinister. They considered orchestrating a car crash with the intent of injuring their target, which uh, that's a big old note because you're going to get caught right away and there's no guaranteeing like what if you hit the wrong part of the car and it doesn't hurt her at all? Or what if you what if you accidentally kill her or a passenger in the car? Like this is just a, that there's too many uh, unknowns in right. that situation. Yeah. The only so, way to, like, not make it so obvious that you were involved and, like, aside from her, like, dying... Right. ...would be as something as simple as, like, like tampering with her brakes or tampering with, like, turn signals. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's... It's... Obviously, it, it makes sense why they did not choose this. This would... There was too many contingencies that could go wrong. Right. Um... They all they even talked of cutting her Achilles tendon, which is far more like life altering, I would think. Than... I mean yeah, I mean at this at that time, I'm sure they weren't putting back Achilles tendons <laughs> like they can now. Uh, I, I mean also like any I feel like any athlete who has had like a tendon repaired, they no matter how good of an operation you have and how good your physical therapy is like it's never going to be brand new it's never gonna like you're never gonna be able to do the things you were able to do a hundred percent like you did before mm-hmm. um so uh actually one of the conspirators shane stant uh said no to that one because he thought it was unnecessary and too permanent like he didn't he just kind of wanted to like get in get out mm-hmm. like not really looking at somebody as like a real person this is just a job but he didn't but it seemed like he didn't really want to like long term hurt somebody he at least humanized her yes a little bit even though when it came down to it you know you still attacked a person in a really close range and you have to kind of disassociate to do that so Eckhart ever the James Bond wannabe, even suggested murdering her by sniper rifle. Like, this suggestion was not a welcome one. Um, so, but ultimately, the group opted for the knee-whacking. They agreed that the best place to get at Kerrigan was after a practice. The men got the name of the Boston-area rink and the times of Kerrigan's training sessions from Tanya, who had gotten the the info from figure skating writer Vera Morano, under the guise of settling a bet she had with her husband. This information that was handwritten was later found by the FBI and implicated Harding herself in the conspiracy to take Kerrigan out of the competition. After waiting for several days to hear back from the hitmen, Galuli thought uh, that it, that the whole plan was not going to go through. Uh, but that was because Kerrigan wasn't in Boston. She was in Detroit 
warming up for the upcoming competition that was being <laughs> held there. So they'd sent these buffoons to a place where their target was not even there. Yeah, it's kind of hard to pull off a, a scheme and a devious plot in a city where the target isn't there. Right. Uh, so they had to, because part of the card, part of their expenses was like, like travel expenses. So they they actually could not afford to fly to Detroit. So they had to take a bus. So they had to take a, a um prob- what I am sure was probably a miserable bus trip from Boston all the way to Detroit. I'm sure it was like overnight bus where no one sleeps. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's cramped. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it does not sound like it would have been a fun, fun trip. Nancy Kerrigan was the defending champion at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships in 1994. On January 6th, the day before she was to compete, she was practicing at the Detroit Kobo Arena in preparation for the competition. So it's funny, before this year, this was the worst thing that ever happened on, on January yeah. 6th. <laughs> oh, man. Um, after completing her practice, which was watched by many spectators, she stepped off the ice and walked down a corridor toward the exit. She saw a man walking toward her, but didn't think anything of it at the time. But right as the man was about to pass her in the hall, he pulled out a collapsible metal baton that he had concealed in his clothing and struck Kerrigan hard on her right leg, just above the knee. Kerrigan fell to the ground and screamed out in pain in that now infamous moment, why, why, why? And it was more of like a, why yeah it's like she the way that she screams it is mm-hmm. like she knows that this was intentionally to yeah. ruin her yes again this has become like a gif kind of memeable moment i feel like this should not be should, a meme though it should not it, but it really sucks like <laughs> Yeah, it's just awful, because when she cries, you can tell she is just, like, Mm -hmm. she is devastated. Well, and it seemed that everybody seemed to think that they had broken her knee or something, which, like, a knee injury to a skater, that is career-ending. And here she was, like, at the top of her game, and then suddenly, because of something that she, that was not her fault at all, she was facing the end of her career possibly so the the attacker managed to escape but not before crashing through a glass door on his way out which is very hilariously illustrated in the movie i i mean it's worth it just to see that scene i alone. mean it made me chuckle just like yeah. thinking like i'm going to barricade through a glass door oh my gosh uh yeah it's it's oh it was a push door not a pull door like you didn't have to break down the the, the door. Let's see. A getaway car was waiting for him on the outside and the pair sped away. The attacker was Shane Stant and the getaway driver was his uncle, Derek Smith. So the two men uh, who were sent to Boston. I guess they finally made it to Detroit. 
two amateur hitmen who had been paid by Galuli actually did manage to carry out the attack they set out to do to clear the way for Tanya Harding to sweep her way to victory. Nancy Kerrigan did not suffer any broken bones, thankfully, but her leg was bruised so badly that she was not able to participate in the competition the next day. Tanya did give one of the best performances of her career at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships the next day and won not only a first place finish, but a spot on the United States Olympic team. She was obviously ecstatic for her win and appeared genuinely concerned for her fallen competitor. But her win seemed tainted by the strange circumstances of the attack on her chief rival. It was not long until the whole conspiracy began to close in around Harding and eventually ruin her career forever. On January 11th, the black baton that was used to attack Kerrigan was found behind Kobo Arena. The FBI took it in and examined it for fingerprints. Meanwhile, back in Portland, it turns out that Eckhart couldn't keep his big mouth shut about the deal. He blabbed to multiple people about being involved, and as a result, multiple people reported him to the FBI. So I just want to point out that one, I don't understand uh, criminals who brag about what they did. Especially like he didn't really even do anything. No, like, he didn't. He just kind of set the thing up. Uh huh. And so one, he's dumb. Mm -hmm. Two, um, real good job of disposing the baton at the crime scene itself. Oh yeah, what a freaking idiot! Right? It, I. It seems like after he smashed the window, he probably just like chucked it somewhere. And if it's collapsible, freaking collapse it again. <laughs> right? Hide it in your pocket, and then go throw it in a river. Like, right? I know. What? There is a river nearby in Detroit. You or you could throw it into one of the Great Lakes. You know. Yeah. These people have stupid written all over. Yeah, it, they definitely are not professionals. That's for sure. I um, I'm the scenes for the movie are just running through my head, and they are absolutely hilarious. Especially when it when they talk when they show Eckhart blabbing to everybody because he wants to feel like he is. How do I put this nicely? He's a very pear shaped man. And, and he is not like the action adventure type, but I think he really wants to be the action adventure type. And in one of his interviews, he, he said that he was like an expert, like he was a body, like a professional bodyguard and an expert in counterterrorism. And it's like, dude... They're like, we checked and you don't have any of these credentials. It's so funny. Uh, yeah. Again, I can't recommend this <laughs> uh, highly enough. So yeah, he got reported multiple times to the FBI. And so when Eckhart was confronted by authorities, of course, he rolled over almost immediately. So here we are less than a week after the attack and the plan was already unraveling with Eckhart implicating himself, Galuli, and the other two men. So, but not Tanya at this point? At this point, no. 
Galuli maintained his innocence at first, initially denying any involvement in the attack. But things didn't look good for him as the accomplices began getting picked up by authorities. On January 13th, Eckhart and Derek Smith were arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit assault. Uh, and they were picked up in Portland. The next day, Stant, uh, the man who delivered the whack herd around the world, surrendered to the FBI in Phoenix, Arizona. As all of the associates are picked off one by one, Harding herself became a person of interest in the investigation. Well, I mean, yeah, if her ex-husband's involved, right? of course they're going to... And she was the one to benefit the most. It's really not hard to connect the dots here. Right. Uh, which is why I'd be like, if you're trying to fix something like a game or like something that you will directly benefit from and the second someone sees that there's something fishy you are going to be the first suspect because they always look at who is looking to benefit from any crime first like who's got a motive yeah i mean i'm sure tanya was uh, a suspect of interest but i'm also sure they were looking at like christy yamaguchi yeah, and, and Michelle Kwan, maybe. And like, they did talk to everybody in the, uh, everybody who competed. So the FBI talked to everyone uh, because, yeah, it could, honestly, it could have been any of the skaters because I'm sure, you know, as even if you're a good sport, you wouldn't mind if your biggest competition just happened to not be able to show up. Right. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. You got to cover the bases. Yeah. So the evidence was strong against Galuli and his accomplices, but it was a lot weaker against Harding. Remember that paper on uh, that had Kerrigan's practice schedule on it? So an FBI handwriting expert determined that it was written by Tanya, which was a compelling piece of evidence that pointed toward her being at least somewhat in on the conspiracy. But while the scandal unfolded, Harding was still the U.S. champion, and was allowed to be part of Team USA at the Winter Games in Norway. Kerrigan was also selected to be on the Olympic team, and the two rivals would now be competing on the ice together, representing the United States, and also against each other for individual glory. The 94 Olympic Games in Lillehammer, Norway, were dramatic and once again disappointing for Harding. When she skated, there was an infamous issue with a broken lace that caused her to stop mid-performance. I remember this. Yeah. There's this really great uh, iconic photograph of her and she's got like, she like skates over to the judges panel and like puts her, her skate like up on like, so here she's just like, here's my foot. Uh, like she puts her skate up for them, for the judges to look. And I assume she was, uh, trying to say like, this is why I can't skate. Yeah. Because my like, lace is messed up. Yeah. There's up. something wrong here. And, uh, I didn't know you could just do that. Um, but the judges. Also, I didn't know that you could just whack someone in the knee with a bar. <laughs> Tanya apparently can do what she wants. <laughs> right. Um, the judges actually did allow her to reskate, so I guess she got a chance to like either like 
fix your skate or whatever was Which, wrong. Actually, I think that's fair. I was just nice. Cause yeah, sometimes there's something that's out of your control. And it's like, yeah, the judges and the audience, like everybody wants to see you do your best. Um, and if it's not you messing up, yeah. but it's your... If it's your skate lace messing you up, yeah, I feel like you deserve a second chance. Right. Also, it's like if somehow your shoelace becomes untied, like don't you think you deserve to like fix that so you don't you know die on the ice or something? <laughs> I don't know. So they did allow her a reskate, but she had already psyched herself out and ended up placing a disappointing eighth place, Ugh. which is well below the last time she went to the Olympics where she placed fourth. So Kerrigan actually ended up taking the silver medal that year, but was dissatisfied to have lost the gold to Ukrainian skater Oksana Bayul. Chinese skater Chen Lu took bronze. Kerrigan not only looked extremely unhappy on the podium, but had also been caught in a hot mic moment. So Kerrigan and Lou were waiting for nearly 20 minutes while officials were searching for the Ukrainian national anthem to play. So I assume like, so this was like the, the mid nineties. So the most advanced technology they had was probably CDs. Yeah. They couldn't just pull up Spotify. Yeah. They can say series play the Ukrainian national anthem. <laughs> right. I know now they could do that. Um, so I imagine they probably had to sort through the, I'm guessing, 100 plus national anthems that they had. You know, I don't understand why they didn't just have them alphabetically filed, like ready to go. But I don't know. I guess I don't know who was responsible. They're like, oh, the Ukrainian one. That's the one we don't have at hand. Uh, so that's what was actually happening. They were searching for the national anthem to play at the ceremony. But someone mistakenly said that the reason for the delay was because Bayul had cried off her makeup and was going to have it touched up. So Kerrigan, annoyed at the prospect, was caught saying, oh, come on, she's going to get out here and cry again. What's the difference? So a very bitter Nancy Kerrigan right there. And that did not, and, and that actually did air on like the, the coverage of um, like the Olympic coverage too. Mm -hmm. So that did not really reflect very well on her. Um, and then shortly thereafter, she was caught again on a hot mic at um, a Disney world parade. So when, after she was done at the Olympics, she was brought to Disney world to be part of this huge parade celebration thing. And uh, she was caught saying, this is dumb. I hate it. This is the corniest thing I have ever done. By the way, Disney was her, was one of her main sponsors to the tune of like $2 million. So this was like, it was kind of like, I don't know. It felt like biting the hand that feeds you kind of. Sure. Where she was kind of like, I think this is dumb, but also it's like, this is what, this is part of the deal. Right. A few weeks later, she also bombed at hosting Saturday Night Live. And after that, her bad publicity soured some of her endorsement deals. So it turns out you can be a sore winner just as easily as you could be a sore loser. Meanwhile, things just kept getting worse for Harding. 
She had spoken to the FBI, but was not able to keep her story straight. Galuli also managed to implicate his ex-wife, and everyone went down in flames for the attack in one way or another. Shane Stant, the physical attacker, pled guilty for uh, conspiracy to commit assault. He served 14 months of an 18-month sentence and was released from prison in July of 1995. His uncle, the getaway driver, Derek Smith, also received an 18-month sentence and was released early after 14 months as well. After his release, he moved to Montana and faded into obscurity. So apparently he was like the most, uh, he had like the most private life after this because, I mean, he was the getaway driver. He was probably really embarrassed about the whole thing and just wanted to be left alone. Sean Eckhart pled guilty to racketeering and spent 15 months in prison. After the unwanted publicity, he changed his name to Brian Griffith, uh, and he would later die at the age of 40 from natural causes. So mm. kind of like a, and he was kind of a, kind of a sad character in the sense that like he lived in his parents' basement for most of his life. It seemed like, he didn't have a lot going on, so it's sad that, like, the only thing that people will ever, ever remember you for is just, like, you wanting Orchestrating to... Orchestrating yeah. an attack yeah. against your ex-wife's competitor. Or your friend's ex-wife's yes, yes. competitor. Yeah, huh. it's, it's just kind of a, a sad end for him. Uh, Galuli got the harshest sentence of two years after pleading guilty, guilty to racketeering charges. After his time in prison, he changed his name to Jeff Stone, which is honestly, you should have changed your name so long ago. Galuli, it is, does not roll off the tongue. It's just gluey, gluey. It just, ugh. It just makes your mouth do gross things. <laughs> It just keeps making me think of a Midwestern staple dish that I only ever ate in my high school cafeteria called goulash. Oh, yeah. Which is yeah. vile. <laughs> um, I would not eat it as an adult, especially as a vegetarian now. <laughs> but for our listeners who are not Midwestern, uh, macaroni noodles, mm -hmm. uh, ground beef, mm -hmm. some sort of red sauce, mm -hmm. and like some chunky tomatoes. All right. It's like a... Heavier, unattractive version of spaghetti and meatballs. It's funny because it feels like it's kind of just like a, what do you have left in the fridge kind of. It's very 1950. <laughs> so yeah, Galuli changed his name to Jeff Stone. Tanya was implicated in the crime by Galuli, but she continued to deny knowing about the actual plan to attack Kerrigan. So it's kind of this whole back and forth where like, they're kind of implicating each other, and it's funny that, like, only these two people know what actually happened, and because they've both presented different, uh, like, two different narratives. narratives, that we will never know 100% for sure who told the truth and who lied. I believe Mr. Goulash, <laughs> but we'll see. So, uh, uh, um, so Tanya's attorney advised her to admit to hindering 
the prosecution of the guilty parties. So kind of kind of a lesser crime, uh, but it's still a class C felony, hmm. uh, which is considered like a mid-level crime, uh, but still very serious and can range uh, in sentences of like one to tw- up to 20 years. Wow. Uh, not to mention, like when you when you commit a felony, I believe you lose your your right to vote and your right to like serve on a jury, and, and it's on your record forever, which yeah, means employers can find yeah, out about it, and, and you can never get um, like assisted housing like benefits. Yeah, I, I, it was like a you could never get like public assistance for housing. Um, so there's like a lot of weird things that domino effect here as a result. Um, so she was sentenced. So this is what she, what the judge ordered that. So she was sentenced to, uh, pay a $100,000 fine. Pretty serious. Um, three years probation, 500 hours of community service. And perhaps most devastatingly, she had to end her professional skating career. The U.S. Figure Skating Association stripped her of her 1994 title and then forbade her from participating in or coaching skaters for life. So she, it's like your skating career is done as of this moment. So her her greed of wanting to become the best skater Mm -hmm. ultimately led to her never professionally skating or being involved in that world, other than watching it through a TV screen. Right. And it makes me wonder, like, she delivered, a, obviously, a, an amazing performance at that uh, that championship there in 1994. And who knows that if, if Nancy Kerrigan had just been able to compete like normal, maybe she still would have beat her. Like, you'll never know now. Like, it almost is like, sure, yeah, you got to claim you were the, the victor for a moment, but did you actually, were you actually really the best in the country at that time? You'll never know because you didn't allow yourself to compete fairly. Right. Which is, is kind of, I feel like as a, if I were an athlete, I would be really disappointed that I, that part of the joy of competing is to beat the best. Like you have to beat the best to be the best. Exactly. So unable to participate in official figure skating events, Harding did still occasionally skate professionally. She came in second at the 1999 ESPN Pro Skating Championships, uh, but was not able to make a living from it as she once had. So she could, if there was anybody who like outside the world of like the the official umbrella of the like U.S. figure skating. They like you could still do that. Sure, and like she could probably do like local tournaments. Or... Yeah, as long as it wasn't part of that umbrella of the like U- U.S. figure skating. But there's probably that's not where the money is. I'm sure. Um, she was wanting to skate for millions, not for like member of the Jelly of the Month Club <laughs> type of award, <laughs> right? Skating was all she knew, and she soon resorted to taking manual labor jobs like painting, building decks, welding, and she even worked for Sears for a time. Uh, it's And also, like, what's really 
tough is that like she gave up everything to be a skater. Um, she actually dropped out of high school and uh, she did eventually get her GED at some point. But it's like you don't have like this is you put all your eggs in one basket. And then when that doesn't work out for you, you've got nothing to fall back on. Mm-hmm. So remember, anybody who's a, who's going to college to and wants to be a professional athlete, make sure that you major in something that will get you a job in case that doesn't work out for you. Um, but then uh, there was still a second act to be had for Tanya Harding. She was approached by Fox in 2002 to appear on their show Celebrity Boxing, which honestly is just such a ridiculous concept for a show. I think all of the celebrity shows are garbage, in my opinion. (laughs) Uh, So um, so where she was paired uh, to face off against one-time sexual harassment accuser of Bill Clinton, Paula Jones. Uh, Tanya, who was a trained athlete, easily won the match and millions of people tuned in. I think it should be noted, too, that even TV Guide agrees with you. Um, They they ranked uh, that celebrity boxing show number six of the uh, 50 worst shows of all time. (laughs) Yeah, that would uh, I would say Fox, don't bother rebooting that series. Fox takes a lot of uh, very risky yeah, choices. That's true. I mean, they did get a lot of viewers, though. Uh, so inspired by the attention that she got, Harding took up professional boxing and had a short, mixed career. She basically like won half of her matches and lost half of her matches. But ultimately, her asthma though proved to be too much and ended her athletic career once again. Tanya's star faded uh, over the next several years and uh, until the 2017 film I, Tanya came along. She didn't make much from the film itself. Um, she was actually only paid like a consulting fee that was like less than $2,000. So she didn't really like, she wasn't like, an active part of the whole project. I'm sure like she was probably like met with this, like the stars of the show or of the movie probably like one time and they're like getting a feel for mm-hmm. who she is. Right. Uh, she, she did get a sympathetic portrayal by actress Margot Robbie and a boost of interest in her and her career. The following year, she appeared on Dancing with the Stars, which proved lucrative and very fun. She placed third on the season and earned over $200,000. So good for you, Tanya. You are making it work. And it seemed like she had a lot of fun doing that show. Uh, Now she has a new husband, Joseph Price, who she married in in 2010. Uh, a child named Gordon, who was born in 2011, and is generally moving in a positive direction in her life. So okay. I I like the redemption arc of of her. Uh, there there is still some uh, a little bit of fishiness. Like in some interviews, she has kind of alluded to. There was one interview that she revealed that she felt like she's she felt something was up. 
That's the way that she put it. Okay. Uh, when it came to the whole conspiracy against Nancy Kerrigan. But um, it still makes me think, like, you you should have said something or if you knew something was up. Like, either that or you were in on it. Yes, exactly. I mean, that those are the only two paths. So... It's like, you're not really coming out of here, like, smelling like roses, but I also have at least a little bit of a sympathetic view of her because it seemed like things really got out of hand. Mm -hmm. And maybe she wasn't really informed as to the whole extent of the plot. Maybe. I don't know. Tanya, if you're out there listening... (laughs) Give me a call. Send us an email at darkanddeviouspodcast at gmail.com. Yes, please do. And uh, I would love to chat. I We could have a Zoom meeting. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> um, so her ex-husband, now Jeff Stone, also remarried and is keeping a pretty low profile. He shaved off that awful mustache and became a used car salesman, which honestly, the mustache fits the car salesman, uh, like, profession better, I think. But overall, it's it's best that it went away. Um, he apologized publicly to Kerrigan, but admitted that any apology coming from me rings hollow. He has two children, uh, although his wife did pass away in 2005. Hmm. Shane Stant, uh, you know, who is the one who actually swung the baton, also shares his regrets for what he had done. He apologized publicly and claims to have changed his ways. He said that him being caught was good for him, uh, or he might have ended up in prison for something worse or dead. He became a bouncer after his prison time and now owns a delivery company in Southern California. So another turned around life. I feel like so far they've all kind of redeemed themselves. Yeah. They've chosen a higher path. Yes. Except for we don't know what happened to uh, Derek Smith. You know, he just kind of went off to Montana to fade into the sunset. You know, I I don't blame him. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Uh, especially after, you know, it seemed like he kind of was trying to, to make himself a fixer. And then it's like, whoa, you got in way over your head, way too quick. Like just ditch your old life. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, and then of course, uh, Eckhart, he just, well, died young. Yes. <laughs> Relative. Yeah. All right, and then Nancy Kerrigan. So she actually continued to skate after her Olympic success. Um, She did get married and retired from, like, the professional, like, competition skating, which, I mean, who would blame her? I mean, like, you got your Olympic medal. You have been, like, a U.S. champion. Um, I think you can chalk that up to be like, let's not have anything else scary or awful happen. Uh, let's just leave it at that. Um, but she, she focused mainly on doing a variety of like ice shows. Mm -hmm. So she did things like champions on ice, Broadway on ice, and even did like, uh, an adaptation of footloose for the rink. Cool. So that's cool that she still got to skate and do a lot of like 
fun stuff. And I imagine that would have a totally different feel to it where it's like the pressure is a lot less. Like you're still getting to do these like cool tricks and moves and stuff like that. And you're still performing, but it's not like someone is there with a scorecard at the end of the day. Sure, yeah. Makes sense. Um, she also occasionally appeared on TV as a commentator, uh, correspondent, and of course, sometimes just as herself. Uh, she is also the mother of four children. Three of them are her own and one from her husband's previous marriage. So overall, she seems like she's had a very successful career post figure skating life. And yeah, and now, now just keep moving on to the future. Yeah. Um, I'm curious as to what some of her like public statements towards the attack and towards Tanya have been. And how they've progressed over the year. Yeah. So I'm sure like when it was fresh, everything was very bitter, very angry. Oh, I could imagine. Um, but I wonder if over time, like wounds have healed and she's like found forgiveness. Because it's not like it completely destroyed her career. She still yeah. went on to win the silver medal mm-hmm. in, the, in the World Olympics. So, I mean... They could have cut her Achilles tendon. Like, they, right? they thought like, about, like, like... Thanks for not doing that. Thanks for not, like, uh, like making me unable to, like, even walk normally right? the rest of my life. So, yeah, that's... I, I would love to know what her stance is on it now. Yeah. It I seems want... like she's kind of been, like, forgive and forget. Yeah. Like. I, I think they might have even made some appearances together at some point just to kind of bury the hatchet. Mm-hmm. I'll have to look into that and see if there's anything official. Um... But yeah, it's, it just, it seems nice that like they are now kind of living totally different lives. Like neither one of them have the pressure of this, of the kind of athletic spotlight like they once did. And now they can kind of just live life. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I know Tanya especially grew up so poor and it's nice to think of her as like, having stability and just being able to be a mom. Right. And I suppose I shouldn't be as negative <laughs> towards Tanya. Right. It's... Uh, but I think adult, adult and more mature Tanya and like young mm-hmm. child Tanya, like I'm totally cool with. It's the early 90s <laughs> The in-between Tanya. I'm, just, the, I'm the, just not a fan. The, I mean, it's it good does, to see that she's grown. Yeah. It does seem that she has uh, really learned a lot from her roller coaster life. <laughs> and I would hope that now she can focus on just being a, a good mom, you know, because now let's see, she's got a 10 year old. Yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe little baby Harding is, is Gordon. Oh, Gordon is, is going to like find uh, his talent maybe maybe he'll be a skater too maybe that would be cool well awesome good job uh it been i did not know all these details uh as i mentioned to you during our breaks i had always thought it was just tanya and her bodyguard Mm -hmm. i did not know that ex-husband was involved and friends of a friend were involved i didn't know all that i just wild i just thought it was tanya and her bodyguard got this plan in their head to Take out competitor number one. <laughs> what I think is funny is that some that some people 
you know, like you kind of misremember things over time, like things get kind of distilled down. Um, because it really did become like the punchline of the day uh, where people even thought that it was literally Tanya Harding, like with a tire iron like uh-huh. that, like, yep. you know, but it wasn't, it, it actually was someone totally different. So I feel like we've, Helped set the record straight a little bit. Yeah, for our um, listeners. Yes, ladies. yes. And um, uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, it seems like everybody, like you said, everybody who was involved now is, has for the most part gotten a chance to turn things around. Yep. And that's good. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. Yes. Um, um, oh, here, I'll let me uh, mention my, my sources here. Um, there was a, a really great, like, where are they now? Like then and now thing from Good Housekeeping. Um, so thanks to Eileen Reslin who did that. Uh, the Detroit Free Press had several um, great profiles and articles, um, both by Tanya Wilt. Um, so thank you for that. Then uh, NBC4 out of Ohio um, had a really great article about Shane Stant and how he's a different person today. Uh, there was uh, a 1993 Northwest TV news uh, segment that I watched on YouTube. Uh, there is also TanyaHarding.com. So there is some great bio- biographical facts I got straight from her website. And then, of course, as always, Biography.com. So there were some excellent sources to be had there. Very cool. Well, everyone, if you've made it this far, <laughs> yes, uh, please feel free to provide us any uh, feedback on this episode or previous episodes. Yes, we're always listening. At, at Dark and Devious Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. That's right. And until next time, uh, make sure your, your, your skate laces are tied yes. tight. Yes, yes. And... Bye. Bye.